Gordon went to college at the University of Indiana, at Harvard and at Stanford. He's practiced law in Washington, D.C. and other parts of the country. And he presently lives near Charleston, South Carolina and has practice in law in the Virgin Islands. And I'm going to ask you not to boo him when I say this. But yesterday, in the midst of our snowstorm, he had the gall to remind me that the lowest temperature ever recorded in the Virgin Islands was 64 degrees. With windshield. With windshield, okay. <laughs> Gordon has written numerous articles, conducts battlefield tours, and somehow finds the time to be a devoted father. He has written extensively on the 1864 campaign in Virginia. His books include The Battle of the Wilderness, the Battles for Spotsylvania Courthouse, and his latest book, To the North Anna River, all published by Louisiana State University Press. Gordon is currently finishing up a book on the Battle of Cold Harbor. Would you please welcome Gordon Ray. Well, it's great to be here in the Windy City. And I don't have much left to say after that quiz. They hit most of my high points. So that was a lot of fun. I thought uh, what I'd do tonight, I said a little uh, sort of a short version of a talk that I would give about how the Overland campaign, the first three weeks of fights between Lee and Grant, pretty much wrecked Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia. And I think I'll stick to that topic, uh, although it'll take me a little bit to get to it. Uh, because of another thing I've, I've discovered over the years I need to do, and that is to sort of put the Overland campaign and the 1864 campaigns into context. I've found that most people think that the American Civil War ended in 1863. My good friend Bob Crick thinks it ended with the death of Stonewall Jackson at the Battle of Chancellorsville. And uh, I'm sure all of you have seen the Gettysburg movie, as I have, thinks, thinks it ended with Joshua Chamberlain's brave defense of Little Round Top. Uh, and that there was a little bit of fighting and then suddenly there was a surrender a year and a half later at Appomattox. Well, it turns out a whole lot more happened uh, after the death of Stonewall Jackson and after uh, Joshua Chamberlain's feats there at Gettysburg. I'd like to put them in context. You can get a sense of what people at the time were thinking. So if you can maybe come back with me to the spring of 1864. 1864, of course, was an election year. Uh, President Abraham Lincoln was up for re-election. Uh, he would be up for renomination in June of that year, re-election in November, and neither of those events was a certainty. There was a very strong peace movement that had developed over the previous year. Of course, there had been draft riots in New York. Uh, there had been a, a very strong push within the Democratic Party for a peace candidate. And as you know, George McClellan would be fielded as that candidate. Uh, and whatever his own sense was about things, he was viewed, particularly by Southerners, as a much better alternative than Lincoln. Lincoln was quite concerned about the way the war was going. He knew that in the spring of 1864, there could not be Confederate victories or his renomination and reelection would be in grave jeopardy. Uh, and it was his job to make sure that there were no Confederate victories. If you read Confederate newspapers during the spring of 1864, it's clear that the Southern politicians were as aware of that as Lincoln was. Uh, the editors in Georgia, for instance, were writing that the best ballots that the South could cast in this upcoming election would be the bullets on the battlefields. Southern victories would be very important. The South could not win the war militarily, but it could win it politically. 
and that is by denying the North victories and denying Lincoln his re-election and having someone in the White House that they at least believed they could treat with uh, reach some kind of a political settlement. So that was sort of the game plan for 1864. It was definitely a time when the war could have gone away very different than it actually went. Now, Lincoln was not that concerned about the Western theater, and by that we usually mean Tennessee, Mississippi, Alabama, places like that. The war had gone very well for the North and the West, and of course the hero of those Western victories was Ulysses S. Grant. Grant had masterminded the victories at Fort Henry and Donelson, the victory at Shiloh. He had gobbled up an entire Confederate army at Vicksburg. He'd knocked another one, Braxton Bragg's army, off of a mountaintop at Chattanooga. Uh, this is a man who could win victories. Uh, the war was going very well for the North and the West. The problem was the Eastern Theater, and by the Eastern Theater, most people thought of Virginia. That was the preserve of Robert E. Lee and his storied Army of Northern Virginia. Lee had had a hard time when he had gone north. He'd lost, of course, the battles at Antietam and Gettysburg, but he stood unbowed and undefeated on his own soil. The Old Dominion was definitely Robert E. Lee's preserve. Every year, Union generals had come into Virginia and within a short time had gone running back north with their tails between their legs. Virginia is where Lincoln was looking. Virginia is where most of the eyes of the nation were focused. My good friend Richard McMurray says that I have what he calls the Virginia disease, or VD, as he <laughs> indelicately puts it. That may be so, but everybody in 1864, or at least almost everybody, had VD, because Virginia is where everyone was looking. That's where the big battles were going to take place. That was the area of high visibility. And if Lincoln could not have victories in Virginia, or at least could not prevent Lee from doing what he always did in Virginia, then the outcome of that election would, would be hanging in the balance, and the Confederacy might finally get what it wanted. So that's how important stakes were in 1864. So you can forget all those things that Bob Crick and Richard McBurry and everyone else has told you. This is going to be a very important year, perhaps the most critical year of the war. Now, in order to win the war in the East, Grant brought his best general, General Grant, from the West. And Grant was given really two jobs. One of them was to supervise the war effort, and the other one was to make sure that Robert E. Lee got beaten. Grant came up with a program that I sometimes summarize as a three-point program. It's a gross simplification of it, but it looks something like this. Grant realized that there was a problem with the way the war had been fought up to that point. One problem was that the armies had fought battles differently in the East and the West. There had been very little coordination between the two theaters. Uh, in his way, he said that the armies East and West were often like a bulky mule team. First one of them would pull, then the other one would pull. And of course, the Confederates could shift troops as they did, say, for the Battle of Chickamauga to take advantage of that. Grant's plan was to stop that kind of discoordination and have the army start to move together so that you'd have battles at the same time in both theaters so the Confederates would be denied the use of their interior lines so they couldn't send troops from one theater to the other. Keep them all busy at the same time was that part of the program. The second thing that Grant realized was that battles had not lasted very long. All of these big battles that Civil War historians like to talk about generally only took a day or two. Some of them, uh, like Antietam only lasted one day. Some of the big ones like Gettysburg lasted three days. But then the armies would stop fighting and they would pull apart and they'd wait for months. As a matter of fact, Gettysburg, which was fought in July of 1863, 
had no major battles in the Eastern Theater following it until the Battle of the Wilderness in May of 1864, basically 10 months of virtual inaction in the Eastern Theater. Grant realized that, it did, that this didn't make any sense. It gave the Confederates a chance to refit and reform, and they would come back as strong as ever. Basically, victories of that sort were not victories at all. So Grant's plan was to have the armies move in tandem and fight continually so that the Confederates would have no chance to refit, to recover from whatever drubbing they took on the battlefield. And the final part of Grant's plan, and again, this is no oversimplification, but this was his main goal, was to change the war objectives. And up to that point, a major objective had been to take territory, to conquer areas and hold them. But when you do that, you have to have troops garrison areas. You have long supply lines that are vulnerable. Grant wanted to get everybody into the armies to fight, and he realized that if you take areas, they can be retaken by the other side. So what Grant said as his objective was the destruction of the Confederate armies. By destroying the Confederate armies, then the Confederacy could be brought to its knees. And so he assigned his good friend William T. Sherman to handle the job in the West and destroy General Joseph Johnston's Confederate Army while he would make sure that Robert E. Lee got destroyed in Virginia. What Grant wanted to do was generally coordinate the various armies but not get involved in the details of the campaign. That he said he would leave to the, to the generals running the various armies. Now, in order to do that, Grant decided he would in Virginia put together a campaign that was sort of a microcosm of his national campaign. The, if you look at Virginia, a map of Virginia, there's a series of rivers that run across the state and they empty into the, into the uh, Chesapeake Bay more or less. Uh, Robert E. Lee's army was underneath the Rapidan River, which is one of the central rivers in Virginia that runs through Fredericksburg. Facing Lee was the Army of the Potomac. This is the main Union army in Virginia. It was commanded by General George Gordon Meade, the victor of Gettysburg, who had done virtually nothing since then. This usually gets a rise out of somebody, but this isn't Pennsylvania, so what the hell? <laughs> this is Chicago. <laughs> a lot of Grant men around here, I can tell it. Good, good, I like Grant too. Anyway, the, um, what Grant decided to do was to use this Army of the Potomac as his main fighting force, send it directly against Lee there on the Rapidan River, take another army under General Benjamin Butler, bring it up the James River, take Richmond if possible, and then come up into Lee's rear, and then take a third army led by General France Sigel, bring it up the Shenandoah Valley over on Lee's left flank, uh, destroy those supply lines, and close off that favored route that the Confederates had for invading the North, basically triangulate on Lee and crush him. So this is, again, bringing massive resources to bear to destroy Lee's army. The main fighting, though, would be between the Army of the Potomac and Lee's Army in Northern Virginia there on the Rapidan River. So that's the general picture of the campaign. The, the fight that I'm going to focus on is going to be the fights between the Army of the Potomac and Lee's Army in Northern Virginia because that's the main army that Lee's going to have to worry about. And since my talk is about Robert E. Lee, I'm not going to worry about all those other armies anymore. Another misconception that I find a lot of people have, and it's one that I shared for a long time too, is that Lee was in dire straits as the 1864 campaign was about to begin. Uh, we have an image of starving Confederates whose guns don't work anymore, uh, faced by this overwhelming horde of well-provisioned Federals. Uh, that too, I think, is an exaggeration of what the reality was, and I've come to the point of view that those armies were fairly evenly matched, uh, at least in fighting capacity, if not in numbers, as this campaign begins. And let me tell you why I think that. 
The Army of the Potomac, uh, by the time Grant's ready to move with that army, will have about 120,000 soldiers. It'll be the regular Army of the Potomac that all of you Gettysburg fans know all about, augmented by the Ninth Corps of General Ambrose E. Burnside, about 120,000 effectives. Lee will have about 65,000 soldiers to fight uh, against Grant. Uh, basically, he'll be outnumbered two to one. The Federal Army, though, is not all that fighting effective. Uh, many of its units, such as Ambrose's, uh, such as Burnside's Corps, will be made up about a third of new recruits. And these will, in large part, be conscripts, uh, many of them people who don't want to be there. Many of them are what the veterans called bounty jumpers and other such scum when you read their letters. Uh, people uh, who are not the, of the caliber uh, of the volunteers of 1861 who were in the Army for, for very different motives. The other big problem was that a large part of the Union Army were volunteers who had volunteered in 1861, and they'd volunteered for three years. Well, if you count, you realize that the spring of 1864 is three years later. They could go home. And so Grant will be setting out against Lee with an army that's about ready to dissolve out from under him. As a matter of fact, during the months of May and June 1864, Grant will, leave, will lose 19 regiments uh, that will go home. These include such major units as the entire division of Pennsylvania Reserves. So there's a big question as the 64 campaign begins about whether or not this Union Army is going to fight very hard because who wants to be in danger if you're about ready to go home? And then it'll start disappearing as soon as the battles begin. A third thing that's important about the Union Army has to do with how the new troops were handled. A lot of these new people will be put into new regiments. They won't be put into experienced regiments. And so you will have basically the blind leading the blind, or as one of Lee's men said, regiments that were formed of pigeons for Lee's men to shoot at. The, uh, the final problem that the Union Army is going to have is one of morale, and that stems from two or three things. Uh, one thing has to do with the generalship of the Army. Uh, I often call the Army of the Potomac a dysfunctional family, and I'd love to talk about that at length, but I'm supposed to talk about Robert E. Lee tonight, so I will not. But when you put the likes of General Meade together with the likes of General Governor Warren and John Sedgwick and, and Phil Sheridan, you can imagine what a mess you're going to have. And then you put Grant on top of it, who's again of a very different personality, very different sensibility about the way of fighting, and you have an army that often seems to be going in opposite directions at the same time. Finally, the Army of the Potomac had a tradition of losing battles. That's about all it had ever done in Virginia. Uh, and when you read the letters from those soldiers, they did not see any reason that 1864 would be any different than 1862 or 1863. So this army is going to go into battle with fairly low morale. Exactly the opposite for Robert E. Lee and his army in Northern Virginia. The Confederates who had volunteered in 1860 and 61 were going to still be in that army in 1864, not particularly because they wanted to, but because the Confederate Congress said they had to. But no one's going to be going home, at least not voluntarily. Uh, there will be some new recruits, but they will all be put into existing regiments, or at least most of them will be, so Greenhorns will be fighting next to experienced men. There will be no question about who's in charge of the Army of Northern Virginia. It is Robert E. Lee. Uh, he will be highly respected, loved by his men. He's almost a legend at this point uh, after his feats of 1862 and 1863. The Confederates view themselves as fighting for hearth and home. They're on their own territory. 
They have Robert E. Lee at their head, and as far as they're concerned, they'll drive those Yankees back this year just like they had every previous year. When they heard that U.S. Grant had come west to fight them, they welcomed him. They said U.S. Grant stands for Up the Spout Grant, and we'll take care of him just like we did Hooker and Burnside and all those other felons. That gives you an idea of the spirit of the Confederate Army, and when you read those Confederate letters, uh, it pops out of every single one of them. They thought they were going to win. So those of you who think that 1864 was just a footnote in the history of the American Civil War, you ought to read some of my books and get a different idea about it. <laughs> the critical campaign. Now, I promised to talk about Robert E. Lee and, his, and his, his Corps command and the men that were there and how this campaign will affect his generalship, and I'll do that now, having set that background. The uh, Lee that most of you know who've, who've studied the Civil War are familiar with the way he ran his army again in 62 and 63. Lee once described his style of generalship uh, to a foreign visitor. He said that he liked to get his army where it needed to be and then leave the details of running the army to his subordinates. He liked to delegate authority. And that kind of battle, battlefield uh, style worked well when he had the likes of James Longstreet and Stonewall Jackson running the two wings of his army. Those men worked very well together at least most of the time. Of course, as you know, Jackson was killed in May of 1863, and so Lee had to reorganize his army. And the army that he reorganizes after the Battle of Chancellorsville is the same army that he will take to Gettysburg, and it's the same army that he will bring to battle against Grant. So uh, the Corps commanders that Lee will be working with uh, for the year before the battles against Grant give him a good idea of what he's got. And he's got some real problems. The Confederate Army is divided into three army corps, or at least the infantry part is. And an Army Corps had close to 20,000 men in it, 15 to 20,000, depending on the month uh, and depending on who was doing the counting. The head of the Confederate First Corps was a gentleman by the name of James Longstreet. Uh, James Longstreet, of course, had been with Lee since, uh, since the, uh, uh, the Army of Northern Virginia began. Uh, Longstreet was Lee's old war horse. Uh, Lee looked to Longstreet as his main advisor looked to him as the man that he could depend upon. After the war, Longstreet developed a bad reputation, particularly among Virginians, uh, because of his politics down there in Louisiana. And uh, he, uh, a lot of that reputation has persisted to this day. You can ask my good friend Bob Crick about that, who will badmouth Longstreet to the end of the world. But I can promise you that as this campaign of 1864 is about to begin, Longstreet is the man that Lee looked to. They conferred together. Lee relied very heavily on Longstreet and trusted his opinion. This is going to be his main, uh, his main man. Uh, the Confederate Second Corps is headed by a fairly unusual character, Richard Stoddard Ewell. Uh, Dick Ewell is usually talked about as having a beak nose and speaking in a chirpy voice, sort of like a bird. Uh, that overdraws things. His most recent bi biographer, Don Fonts, has done a very nice job of telling us what Ewell was really like. But there were problems with Ewell. Uh, as all of you Gettysburg people know, or at least any of you who've seen the movie know, uh, at the Battle of Gettysburg, Lee gave Ewell a discretionary order to take a certain hill if practicable. And as I understand it, Ewell decided it was not practicable and that hill was not taken. And according to some Gettysburg historians, that's why Lee lost the battle. I'm not gonna get into all of that. I don't know much about Gettysburg except what is in the movie. Because I, I think the war started in 1864, so I don't fool with the earlier part. But in any event, Ewell is not the kind of man who can, 
who can follow discretionary orders. Uh, Lee has some big concerns about that. Ewell also was quite ill. He lost his leg uh, at the Battle of Groveton back in 1862. He's having a tremendous number of health problems. And his personal life has also changed dramatically. I might mention this. Uh, Dick Ewell had a childhood sweetheart, a lady named Lazinka. She had jilted him early on and had married a gentleman by the name of Mr. Brown. She had had some children with Mr. Mr. Brown, and then Mr. Brown had died. And when Ewell was injured there at the Battle of Groveton, she had returned to Dick Ewell, had helped nurse him back to health, and they were then married. And so this virtually lifelong, irascible old bachelor now had a new wife. Uh, according to the soldiers, she was extraordinarily headstrong, and they would write home about how she would lead Dick Ewell around the camp by the nose. And they feared greatly that this relationship would, would impact upon the campaign that Dick Ewell was becoming a foolish old man. Uh, there may be some truth to that. It is known that he used to introduce his wife, Lazinka, uh, as my wife, Mrs. Brown. He could, <laughs> could never get quite used to the idea that he was married. But whatever the reason, be it the leg or the wife, Dick Ewell was not up to snuff. So Lee is going to have to watch very carefully the commander of his second corps. The commander of Lee's third corps is a gentleman by the name of Ambrose Powell Hill. Uh, Powell Hill is also a Virginian, A.P. Hill from Culpeper, a little short guy, and you know how they are. Uh, quite, a, quite a ladies' man. He was a very strong commander when he headed a division, the light division, early in the war. But having been raised to corps command, many felt that he had been put into a position that was slightly over his head. I think you Gettysburg experts will have a hard time trying to remember what it was that A.P. Hill did at Gettysburg. Not a whole lot is the bottom line. Uh, I might mention that Hill also had some problems with illness. Uh, he, it seemed that every time the going got rough, he would get quite sick. Some of his earlier biographers thought it was some sort of a psychological malady that had to do with the pressure of elevated command. His most recent biographer, and I think his best, uh, Bud Robertson, whom I know many of you know well, uh, has concluded that it was the result of a prostate infection that he had gotten from gonorrhea contracted at the military academy. Uh, so far as I know, in those days, there was only one way to contract gonorrhea at the military academy. And, and I can tell you something about that, too, in a second, about A.P. Hill that's going to be relevant to his performance here. But uh, this problem would surface whenever the going got rough. And doing a lot of the campaign that we're going to be talking about, A.P. Hill is going to be quite sick. A.P. Hill, I'll just mention on the side also, and I can say these things about him because I'm also a Virginian, having been born not that far from, from Culpeper, where A.P. Hill comes from. Uh, he was quite a ladies' man before the war. I know most of you are aware of the fact that he dated Ms. Marcy, who later married General George McClellan. Uh, he also, by the way, uh, used to date a young lady by the name of Emily Chase from Baltimore. He was a, a well-heeled Baltimore uh, uh, lady. Uh, after the war got going, she married General Gouverneur K. Warren, who, of course, was the Union uh, hero of Little Round Top. I might mention that not long after Gettysburg, General Hill and General Warren first met each other in battle. This was at the Battle of Bristow Station. And Hill defeated Warren and sent a note across the lines to Hill. And the note still exists up in Warren's archives in New York. Uh, he said, uh, General Hill, I have defeated your Army Corps and married your old sweetheart. So that, that gives you an idea of the depths to which this war was sinking by early 1864. Tremendous amount of rivalry. I've also thought, by the way, and I'll just throw this out, my wife wants me to get out of the history business and into writing novels. 
uh, steamy types of novels, and I thought A.P. Hill would make a fascinating one. Um, also, for a little science fiction twist, here's a man who dates women who later marry Union generals. Yes, you've got it. All of those Union generals, McClellan, Warren, seem to become feeble-minded at some point during the battles. Well, you can put the rest together. I don't know, but anyway. Anyway, that's A.P. Hill, the commander of the Confederate Third Corps, an extraordinarily aggressive general, but a man who in 1864 is going to be uh, not pumping on all eight cylinders. There's one other Army Corps I need to mention, uh, and that's going to be the Confederate Cavalry. Confederate Cavalry is headed by General James Ewell Brown Stewart. This is Jeb Stewart. Uh, Jeb Stewart had headed Lee's cavalry since the beginning of the Army in Northern Virginia. Lee loved him as a son. Uh, Stewart uh, was an extraordinarily good man for finding out information. He had slipped up a little bit there at Gettysburg, but now he was back in stride, and he will do a superb job for Lee in the wilderness and in the rest of this campaign until he will die, as you'll see. Uh, Stewart also personified a lot of the youthful, vigorous spirit of the Confederate cavalry. I'm sure you've seen pictures of him. He liked to wear a big hat with an ostrich plume flying back behind it and a yellow sash around his middle. And he had a beautiful coat that he would wear, and then he'd put a rose there when roses were in bloom. And when they weren't, he'd put a piece of red ribbon. Uh, he often, in the early days of the war, he had a banjo player, Sweeney, who'd come in front and play the banjo. Quite a scene. Uh, but Jeb Stewart sort of represents that entire side of the Confederate Army. Very romantic character, uh, the kind of person that Lee loved to have around, that everybody wanted to have around. And a very good cavalryman to boot. So that's the Army in Northern Virginia. That's the bunch of people that Lee is going to have to work with to fight this huge monolithic federal force. Well, how does he do with it? And what does Lee do with his style of command? Because there's going to be a dramatic change. And so finally, I can get to the story. Well, here's what happens. Here's that Rapidan River that I described to you. The Army of the Potomac sits above the river. The Army of Northern Virginia just below it. The federal commanders decide they can't make a head-on attack against Lee because he's too strongly entrenched there on the Rapidan. So the federal plan is to shift east of Lee by a few miles, cross the river, and then turn and come back under the river. What that will force him to do is to pull out from his earthworks and either face the Federals and fight them on open ground or else run away. That's the Union plan. Now, there's one problem with the Union plan, and that is that once you cross the Rapidan River east of Lee, you end up in a patch of terrible woodland called the Wilderness, the Wilderness of Spotsylvania. This part of Virginia was originally well timbered. It was cut down during colonial times uh, for smelting operations. And uh, by 1864, it had grown back up into thick second growth. There was thick switch and chinkapin. I don't know if you have that stuff up here in, uh, uh, in this part of the world. But down in Virginia, it's pretty nasty. It's thick grasses. You can hardly see a few feet past where you are, all kinds of, of, uh, of, of tightly dense packed woods. It looks a little bit like my backyard in the spring before I get out my lawnmower. Uh, terrible place to be. Now, the wilderness was the kind of place where a large army would have a hard time fighting a smaller army. Infantry couldn't see very far down the line. Cavalry would have virtually no good clear areas to operate. Artillery couldn't see where it could fire. So the advantage that Grant would have would be squandered. A good place for Lee, though, with a small army to stop a large army. And Lee's plan for this campaign is to stalemate or stop Grant there at the Rapidan River and, if possible, drive him back across it. Well, the federal planners decide that they will move into this wilderness and stop for the night. 
The reason they decide to stop for the night is because if they move too fast, they will outstrip their supplies. They don't want Lee to cut them off from their wagons. By their estimations, they can get to the wilderness and stop and spend the night, and Lee won't have time to catch up with them. Well, their calculation happens to be wrong. Lee finds out about the Union movement shortly after it begins. Jeb Stewart gets him excellent intelligence that the Federals have moved into the wilderness and settled down. Lee's about 15 or 20 miles away, and he formulates an extraordinarily daring plan. I like to call it the most daring plan of his entire career, and it's one that's going to call for discretionary work on the part of his three Corps commanders that I described. What he wants to do is this. If you look at the Rapidan River running east to west, there are three roads that run below it all parallel. The one right below the river is called the Orange Turnpike. Just below that's an orange plank road, and just below that is a road that's called the Catarpin Road. And what Lee decides to do is this. He'll take his army, outnumbered two to one, and he will attack. Basically, he will go on the offense instead of the defense. And he will not only attack, but he will take his army and bust it into three parts in the face of this overwhelming enemy. He'll take his second corps under Dick Yule, send it out the Orange Turnpike, and pin the upper portion of Grant's army in the wilderness, pin it in place. And then he'll take A.P. Hill's corps, go out the Orange Turnpike with that one, and I'm sorry, the Orange Plank Road with that one, and pin it in place. So those two parallel roads will be the avenues that Lee will use to lock Grant into the wilderness. And then he will take Longstreet, his best man, his maneuverable element, bring him down along the lower road, the Catarpin Road, and then have him attack up into the underbelly of the Union Army, ripping up through their flank and driving them back across the Rapidan River, very much the same way he had used General Stonewall Jackson on that flanking maneuver at Chancellorsville the year before, a maneuver that took place, as a matter of fact, only a few miles from the wilderness. That was Lee's plan, an extraordinarily daring plan. It's the kind of plan, though, that if it works, they say you're a genius, and if it fails, you are crazy to even try it. The reason it would be crazy to try it is because Lee would be breaking his army into three parts in the face of a huge federal force. If Grant figured out what was happening, he could turn against any of those three parts of Lee's army and wipe them out piecemeal, and that would be the end of the army in Northern Virginia. Well, Lee decided this was a desperate time, and he would take this desperate step. He moves his army up next to the army, uh, to the Union Army, during the night of May 4th and 5th. There's very bad cavalry work by the Federals, and so Lee is able to sidle right up next to them. The next morning, the attack orders go out. There's a marvelous account of Dick Yule that morning, by the way, that's left by a artillerist who knew him quite well. The artillerist saw Yule drinking his coffee there by his campfire and goes up to Yule and wants to ask him a question about what's going on. He remarks later, by the way, that Dick Yule was there with his horse and that Yule and his horse looked singularly alike. Uh, he, he did not mention which end of the horse he was talking about. That would, come, that would come in a few more days, and we'll get to that point in just a minute. Yule uh, is asked by the artillerist, what are your orders? And Yule says, fighting orders. I'm to attack the enemy where I find them. And that's exactly what he did. He goes out that orange turnpike heading right toward the Union position. A.P. Hill's going down the road just below him. Lee decides to ride with A.P. Hill. And I think he decided to ride with A.P. Hill because he considered Hill at this point to be the weakest of his three generals. That's where Lee wanted to be. Also, riding with Hill would centrally locate Lee. It was a good spot to be. Yule asks for more instructions. Lee sends him more instructions, and Lee says that Yule is to attack the Federals if practicable. 
Those are haunting words left from Gettysburg. He then adds that Ewell, in, in attacking the Federals, is not to bring on a general engagement. Well, that's one heck of a thing to ask somebody to do. Attack an army uh, the size of Grants, but don't get into a general engagement. Well, Ewell, it turns out, this day does a superb job. He manages to push down the turnpike, throw up entrenchments on a field called Saunders Field, lets the Federals attack him, and manages to pin in place half of the Union Army, two Union Army Corps, doing a marvelous job. A.P. Hill and Lee, down on the Orange Plank Road, do just as well. And by the end of that first day in the wilderness, there's been some vicious fighting, but Lee's plan looks like it's working out. Lee has locked the Union Army in place, and Longstreet is coming up. Lee, however, is concerned that his army, that he needs to have Longstreet up to support Hill, because Hill looks like he might be too weak. But unknown to Lee, Grant has figured out what's going on. It's sort of like Lee's worst nightmare is going to take place. Grant understands that Lee has divided his army, focuses most of his force against the uh, Confederates down on the Orange Plank Road. Half of his army, temporarily turned over to General Winfield Scott Hancock, is to destroy A.P. Hill's Confederates down on the Orange Plank Road. Lee starts to shift Longstreet up, but Longstreet is unable to get up to where Lee is before the sun rises and a, long, a huge federal attack is launched against the Orange Plank Road. Hancock's Federals roll up A.P. Hill's men. Lee is back about a mile behind the battlefront in a big clearing that's called Widow Taps Field. He's there pretty much by himself. There's one line of, art, of uh, artillery under Lieutenant Colonel Pogue. Suddenly, Lee sees A.P. Hill's men running back in disorder, streaming back past him. He realizes that half of his army is getting rolled up. It looks like the army in Northern Virginia might get destroyed, that this daring plan is going to fall apart. A.P. Hill is there with Lee, and according to at least two accounts, Hill starts to work the artillery. This is a corps commander who has basically abdicated his entire responsibility. He used to be an artillerist. He's now trying to help gunners fire some of the guns to hold back the Federals. The, I think it says a whole lot about A.P. Hill and about what Lee will do with Hill as this campaign progresses. And I promise I will get to the end of this campaign. What I'm doing is saving you the problem of having to read my books. Because they're thick, and I can give it to you in a very short form here. And you won't have to read them. Buy them because it's a good thing, but don't, you don't have to read them. Anyway, as the Federals come pouring into this same field, thousands of them, it looks like Lee is going to be captured. It looks like this will be the end of the Confederacy when suddenly... From the other direction come Confederates, and Lee turns around and calls out, what men are these? And the word comes back, Texans. It's the head of Longstreet's column that has just arrived in time, and that usually stoic and quiet Lee tears the hat off of his head and says words to the effect of, Texans, hooray for the Texans. Texans always move them. And then he starts to ride toward the Union soldiers who are pouring in the Widow Taps field to lead Longstreet's men in their attack. Well, the Texans realize what's happening. They grab the bridle of Traveler, they grab Lee's boots. I always like to mention that when I was down in Texas doing research about the, uh, what the Texans did there at the Widow Tap Field, there's a, the Hill, uh, Hillsboro, Texas, at the Hill College, has a marvelous collection of Texas letters that were written by the regiments that were there, and I can assure all of you that there's not a single Texan that did not claim to have been the one who held Traveler's bridle. <laughs> But things happen something like that. Longstreet persuades Lee to go to the rear, and he does. Longstreet then takes control of this part of the battlefield, and it's probably Longstreet in his finest hour. He organizes the uh, Confederate attack. He sends the divisions forward pretty much in column. 
drives back the disordered head of the Union troops, stabilizes the strong line, launches a big flank attack that drives up or rolls up the entire flank of the Union Army. I don't think Hancock had ever been that badly treated before to see his entire Second Corps rolled up. But then disaster strikes because Longstreet is riding toward the front to help organize further pursuit, and some Virginians uh, who have crossed the plank road where he is come back, mistake the headquarters cavalcade for, for Federals, and shoot at them. And Longstreet is shot from his horse by his own man. A bullet rips through his throat and exits out by his shoulder. And now leaves more horses out of commission. Not killed, but seriously wounded, and will be out of commission for many months. That, the rest of that movement has to stop, and the Confederates puzzle about what has happened. Many note that General Stonewall Jackson had been killed almost exactly a year before when he was shot by his own men while executing a flanking maneuver in those very wilderness woods. Some wondered if fate was not really conspiring against them. But in any event, second day of fighting Grant, Lee has now lost his number one man, General Longstreet. Toward the end of the day, General Hill finally launches a flank attack up on the other end of the Union line. It doesn't go off so well. Nightfall blocks it. Apparently, Lee felt that Ewell should have made an earlier attack, begins to wonder whether Dick Ewell, even though he's very good at defensive work, is capable of doing offensive operations such as the type that Lee favored. Grant now, though, is locked in the wilderness, and that night, Grant realizes he cannot fight anymore in the wilderness. He decides that he will resort once again to maneuver. Grant is a maneuverer. Uh, he maneuvers to get Lee out from his Rapidan entrenchments. He decides to maneuver once again to pull Lee out of the wilderness. Decides to send his army south, swing it around Lee and drop it south about 10 miles to a little hamlet called Spotsylvania Courthouse. That will put the Union Army between Lee and Richmond. He figures then Lee will leave the wilderness, come out and fight him on open ground. Pretty good maneuvering, pretty good idea. It doesn't work for a variety of reasons. Confederate cavalry slows Grant's advance, and Longstreet's replacement, uh, General Richard Heron Anderson of, North, of South Carolina, manages largely through luck to get his men at the right place at the right time and block the Union advance. May 8th, this campaign's been going on three days. A.P. Hill becomes so sick that he has to step down from command. He ends up in an ambulance. He will be out of commission for several weeks. Three days, two men down. Lee's lost two of his top men. Lee puts General Jubilee early temporarily into A.P. Hill's position. Well, things deteriorate fairly quickly. Lee manages to draw a strong line above the town of Spotsylvania Courthouse to stop Grant. Grant digs lines that parallel Lee's just above Spotsylvania Courthouse. General Phil Sheridan has now taken over the Union Cavalry. Uh, Phil Sheridan is a very strong-minded man, gets in a big fight with General Meade, who's the head of the Union Army, and just as strong-minded, Grant backs Phil Sheridan, much to General Meade's discomfort, and permits Sheridan to head off on a raid. Sheridan's plan is to ride away from the armies. He thinks that if he does that, Jeb Stewart will come out after him, and then he can fight the Confederate cavalry in open ground and destroy them. That's basically Sheridan's plan. Sheridan rides south. Stewart does just as Sheridan thought he would do. He leaves the Confederate army, tries to head uh, Sheridan off. The two cavalry forces meet at a place called Yellow Tavern, on May the 11th, campaign's now only be going on six days, and at Yellow Tavern, Jeb Stewart decides to make a stand against a much larger cavalry force. Of course, he's much, I think he's quite a bit of a grandstander. He's right in front of the Confederate capital. There's no way he is going to retreat. There is one heck of a battle, and Jeb Stewart is shot in the belly by a sharpshooter from Michigan. 
a gentleman by the name of Huff and dies the next day. So now Lee has lost two of his infantry commanders and his top cavalryman in the first week of the campaign against Grant. Things keep going downhill. Lee's men dig entrenchments all across the area in front of Spotsylvania Courthouse to block the Union Army. They've learned the art of, of earthworks, and this is something that sprouts up during this campaign. It's a marvelous development. We could talk about it a long time. As you can tell, I can talk about anything for a long time. That's what my wife says. Anyway, the way they built these entrenchments, I might just, just mention this because it'll play a part in what happens next. Confederates dig, uh, they lay out the lines on high grounds and ridges. They then dig trenches so that they can get down into them. Early in the war, they used to dig trenches and, put, and trenches and put the dirt behind them. They've learned you're supposed to put it in front of you so it will stop going better. They're now doing it that way. They throw it in front. They then cut clear, they cut the fields in front of them or any forest in front of them to make a two or 300 yard cleared field of fire. They take the, the tree trunks, they incorporate them into their earthworks. They put logs across the top of the earthworks held up by chinks of wood. So you have a head log. You can fire and you're covered your body by the earthworks. Your head's covered by the head log. Powerful defensive positions. Those cleared fields then have uh, trees dumped into them with the sharpened part facing toward the enemy. And when the enemy charges, they have to crawl through all of that. All the time you're shooting at them. Uh, impossible places to charge. The Federals launch a series of assaults against those earthworks over a period of four or five days. I describe them in brutal, grisly, and nauseating detail in my book on Spotsylvania Courthouse. To save you reading that one, the bottom line is none of them work. The earthworks are as strong as you might imagine. Grant figures that out, though, and on the evening of May 11th, this is while Stewart's getting killed several miles away down at Yellow Tavern, Grant comes up with a plan to bust through Lee's line. He can finally do it. What he decides to do is this. Lee's earthworks do not run exactly in a straight line. At one point, the ridges cause it to bulge out toward the Federals and then come back around. It's shaped like, sort of like a mule shoe. And the Confederates, being sharp characters, called it the mule shoe. And it looked kind of like that. It's about a protuberance, you might think of it, or a bubble in the Confederate lines that runs out for about a half a mile, and it's about a half a mile wide. Militarily, it's called a salient. A salient is a bad thing to have if you want to draw a military line because it's very weak. And it's weak for this reason. If, if you think of a salient heading towards you, the enemy like this, I don't think of you guys that way, heading towards you like this, if you attack the head of the salient, the men on each side can't protect the top. Or you can attack it from two sides at once and crush it in. Or if you attack it from over here, if you think of that, if I had one more hand, I could show you even better. If you attack this part, the guys over here who are protecting it will be getting shot in the back. I know this sounds complicated now, but if, um, if, when I'm done talking, if you go home and start making salience and stuff, you'll see what I'm talking about. A very bad, a very bad, take, take my word for it, very bad military position to have. Lee permitted his lines to have this mule shoer salient because he wanted to protect some high ground. He wanted to hold that ground. He had a good reason for it. He realized that he could hold it if he had it filled with artillery. And so he put virtually all of Richard Ewell's 2nd Corps artillery into this mule shoe to hold it. Well, Grant got wind of the salient, and by the evening of, the, of May 11th, he'd come up with a plan. A massive attack to punch through the head of Lee's line at the salient. He decides to take his entire 2nd Corps, these are, are his, his best men under General Hancock, some 20 to 25,000 soldiers, mass them about a half mile in front of the head of this mule shoe. This is going to be the force that's going to be almost double the size of Pickett's force in that famous charge at Gettysburg. A massive charge is going to take place, probably the biggest one of the war up to this point. 
Then he's going to take another army corps under General Horatio Wright. This is his sixth corps and bring it in more at an angle. And he'll take his ninth corps under Burnside and bring it in from this way, crush the salient, smash in the head, tear Lee's army in half, and that'll be the end of this business. A very good plan. And, and Grant is aided by the elements. It starts to rain on the afternoon of May 11th, and it rains all night. And the rain covers up a lot of the movements that he's making to get his men into place for this assault. It also confuses Lee. Lee misreads the intelligence that, he, that he's getting. Lee decides that Grant is retreating. All these troop movements mean the, the Federals are leaving. Well, Lee, as I mentioned, was an extremely aggressive man. He doesn't want to let Grant get away. He wants to be able to chase him the next morning. Because of the rain, the area behind the mule shoe is becoming very muddy. There's no good roads there. So Lee decides he will pull the artillery out of the mule shoe, bring it back to Spotsylvania Courthouse, about a mile or a mile and a half to the rear, put it on good roads so that in the morning he can chase Grant. So unknown to Lee, he is weakening the very part of line that Grant has targeted for a massive attack the next morning. Well, sometime during the night, Lee got wind that, that things may not be as they seemed. Uh, he orders the artillery to go back into position, but for various reasons, the orders don't get to the artillery in time. And so when sun comes up, the Confederate artillery will not yet be back into the mule shoe. 4.30 in the morning, Hancock gives the order for the charge. This massive number of Federal troops, probably 25,000, rise up and come pouring across these cleared areas toward the head of the mule shoe. They go up onto a little ridge to go to Spotsylvania Courthouse. All that area has been very well preserved. They roll up onto a ridge and they can see about 200 yards ahead that red line of dirt that signals the front of the Confederate entrenchments. They charge forward. It's still raining. It's still very misty. Confederates realize what is happening. Some of them are prepared. Some of them are not. They jump up onto their parapets to fire back into the Federals coming at them. Many of the muskets don't go off. The powder's wet. The percussion caps fire, but the powder and the guns doesn't, don't fire. The Federals tear their way through those, entrenched, those um, obstacles roll up onto the head of this mule shoe and go crashing through it. And within minutes, the entire mule shoe is being overrun by federal troops, thousands of them. The entire Confederate Second Corps, Ewell's men, are being scooped up. Some 3,000 are set to the rear as prisoners. And it looks like Grant has finally done what he needs to do. Lee is up. He happens to ride. He'd be riding near the mule shoe at that point. He rides into the endangered area, and he starts to put things together. And what he does, I think, says a whole lot about what has happened to his army. He no longer has Longstreet. He no longer has Hill. He no longer has Stewart. He's got Dick Ewell. And sometime early in this morning, he sees Dick Ewell. Dick Ewell has ridden into the mule shoe area. Many of his men are still running back. And Ewell has taken out his sword. And he is whapping his men on the rear to try to drive them back into their lines. Lee rides up to Ewell. And according to various accounts, to put it differently, says words to the effect of General Ewell. If you cannot control yourself, how do you expect to control your men? Uh, to marvelous effect, and he does it again here at Spotsylvania Courthouse. He forgets about his corps command. He forgets about his division command. He starts to pull out his best course. What he wants to do is this. He wants to drive the Federals out of the interior of the mule shoe, clear that area of Union troops, drive them back to the other side of his earthworks, and then have other men dig a new defensive line across the base of the mule shoe, basically cut it off. And when that line is, is built on high ground, then he will withdraw his defending troops and he'll be in a strong position. He realizes he can't hold a mule shoe. So the game is to hold it long enough to build a new line that, that he can then drop back into. He pulls out from his second corps, from Ewell's corps, Stephen Dotson and Ramsour's North Carolinians, 
fires them into one area of the mule shoe over on the western wing that has to be held, pulls out Abner Perrin's Alabama boy, takes them next to that part. They're all also from the, they're from the third corps. Pulls out Nat Harris's Mississippians from another sector of line, brings them into the mule shoe, takes them onto that piece, a critical piece of high ground where this mule shoe makes a turn, uh, is sort of like an angle. The soldiers call it the west angle or the bloody angle. It becomes a pivotal part of the battle because if you'll go to battlefields, no maps look flat. Battlefields have ridges and humps and things like that in them. So does the uh, Wilderness and Spotsylvania battlefield. The stretcher line is this western wing between now filled with Confederates, slopes downward, and then the land goes up fairly sharply to this bloody angle or west angle. That's held by Federals and they can fire down or enfilade the Confederates who are taking over the adjacent piece of the trench. The high ground has to be taken. Lee pulls out what I consider to be his best combat unit, Sam McGowan, South Carolinians, fires them into that area. They manage to take that piece of ground, and for the next 22 hours, those four deep south regiments hold pretty much the contested area of field. North Carolina boys hold the eastern edge of this salient. The battle rages all that day, all the next night, until 3 o'clock the next morning. And it's a battle such as no one had yet seen in this Civil War. It was a battle in which the two armies were basically plastered against opposite sides of the same set of earthworks, separated only by a few feet of dirt. Men would jump up on top of those earthworks, fire down into the soldiers on the other side. The best shots would stand on top and just be handed rifles and fire down. Men would take their bayonets, stab them through the dirt to kill the man on the other side. They would jump up over the top, use their rifles like clubs, swatting away at everybody. It was a face-to-face, -face, almost murder, as the men call it, who fought there. It was like all of the anger of the last three years was finally making itself. The armies had finally gotten each other by their throats. There, the trenches on the Confederate side were filled with water because it was raining and thundering. thundering. They were filled with blood. Dead men were stacked four or five deep. Live ones would crawl out from underneath dead ones and, uh, and jump back into the fight. The stories are horrendous to come from the bloody angle. I've got them all in my book on Pennsylvania Courthouse, of course. And those are worth reading. That fight goes on all day. A tree behind the South Carolina units is cut down a 22 inch in diameter by musketry alone. That gives you an idea of the level of firepower from both armies pouring into there. Three o'clock the next morning, Lee completes that line behind the mule shoe, orders the men back, and they drop back. And when the sun comes up, Grant discovers that this horrendous piece of fighting, something like 18,000 men dead, wounded, and captured, uh, when you count from both sides, had gained him three acres of blood-stained Virginia soil, and Lee was in Scott in a position that was stronger than the one he had the day before. Well, Grant, of course, was somewhat miffed at all of this. Uh, the next two days, he tries to round Lee's flank. Can't do that because of the, of the weather. Finally, on the 18th of May, he launches a major assault, which is driven back by Confederate artillery alone, and Grant now realizes he can't beat Lee at Spotsylvania. So what does he do? He maneuvers. He figures he will do two things. First, he will take Hancock's Army Corps, throw it out, uh, sort of as bait, and see if Lee will go after it. And if Lee does, he will then descend on Lee and destroy him. And if Lee doesn't go after Hancock, then what, what Grant will do is simply roll south. And what Grant wants to roll south to is a place called the North Anna River, which gives me a third book. I'm very grateful to Grant for all of this. <laughs> the, uh, it keeps me busy. North Anna River is about 25 miles below Spotsylvania Courthouse. And by the way, I won't take you past the North Anna River. First, I haven't, I don't know anything that happens after that because I haven't gotten that far in my writing. But also, uh, North Anna will make my point as to what's happened to Lee's command. 
25 miles south is this river, the North Anna, another one of those east-west rivers, a good defensive position. Grant wants to get there before Lee. Well, interesting things happen on the way to the North Anna River. Hancock's Army Corps is thrown out as bait. Lee does not take the bait, I think mainly because he didn't realize it was bait. He didn't understand where Hancock was or what was going on. It's sort of one of those great plans that don't work because nobody noticed it. <laughs> Another crazy thing happens, though. Grant looks to, it looks to Lee like Grant is making a huge swing out to the east. Lee thinks that Grant is heading over to the Pamunkey River. Uh, this will put him way east of Lee. Lee basically misreads Grant. He doesn't know that Grant means to fire pretty much south. And Grant parks his army right next to the main north-south road. It's a road called Telegraph Road. It runs more or less from the Spotsylvania area down to the North Anna River and thence to Richmond. So while Grant's army is parked there during the night, Lee pulls his army out of Spotsylvania Courthouse and sends the bulk of it down that very same road. I know you historians of the Western theaters are familiar with Spring Hill, uh, when General Hood uh, managed to let a federal force slip past him while some of his men were right next to the roadside. Exactly the same thing happens on the way to the North Anna River. Lee doesn't know that Grant's there, and Grant doesn't know that Lee is marching by. The next morning, the Federals discover what has happened, and I can tell you there are some pretty severe recriminations running up and down Union headquarters. Everybody's tired. Everybody is shot. Lee reaches the North Anna River, crosses it safely. Grant decides to pursue. Lee doesn't realize that Grant is pursuing him. Again, there's a breakdown in the intelligence that Lee is picking up. Lee thinks Grant's heading on over that way when actually Grant is coming right at him. So Lee is not entrenched. The worst thing possible happens. Suddenly, on the day of May 23rd, the campaign now has been going on not quite three weeks, the Federal Army shows up on the north bank of the North Anna River, and an entire Union Army Corps, General uh, Warren, crosses the river a couple of miles upriver at a place called Jericho Mills. General Hill, who's now returned, he's recovered from his sickness and has just come back a day or two before, tries to drive General Warren out and is unable to. He's defeated at the Battle of Jericho Mills. Maybe Emily Chase had something to do with that because, of course, the prior lover and the present husband are in that same battle again. And indeed, General Warren does send a letter back to Emily saying that I have met your old beau again and defeated him as usual, or words to that effect. <laughs> Hill, though, is extraordinarily disgraced. Lee sees him, and Lee says, again, some of the most biting words of his career. He says, General Hill, why did you, do, why did you not do as General Jackson would have done sent your whole force against them and driven them across the river. Pretty tough words from an for an army commander and of course very embarrassing to General Hill, but probably an apt statement of what General Lee thought. <clears throat> Lee's now in a tough position. Here's the North Anna River. Federal's facing him on the north bank. Federal's over here on his left flank across the river. Here's his army. He comes up with what I consider to be his best defensive uh, a maneuver of the entire campaign. I told you the wilderness was his best offensive maneuver. He now does something equally brilliant. I think he often gets himself into jams, and his brilliance is his ability to get himself out of those jams in very good ways. What he decides to do is to take advantage of topography and take advantage of human nature, because he's now psyched out Grant. He knows this guy is really aggressive, but he's coming after him. So what Lee does is this. Here's this North Anna River sitting here. I don't have enough arms, but it's running east and west. Lee takes his army and bends it back into a salient, just like the one we saw there at Spotsylvania Courthouse, but this one's going to be different. The head of this salient, the top of it, rests on the south bank of the North Anna River, and it rests on high cliffs, so the Federals cannot attack it. They have to come across the river and climb a big bunch of hills, about 300 feet to get to it, and couldn't do that. So the head of it is safe. 
the sides of it are on high ground and very well entrenched. So that means that they can be lightly held. That means he has the ability to shift troops from one side to the other side and be able to hold either side defensively. Lee knows that when he throws his lines together like this, it's going to look to Grant, who's up here, like Lee has left, like he has retreated and is heading back to Richmond. Because all Grant will see is basically that tip, which will look like sort of a little holding force. Lee figures what Grant will do is chase. That means Grant will come across the North Anna River. And with Lee like this, and with Grant like that, it doesn't take much imagination to see what will happen. The Union Army will be split in half across the head of this inverted V or wedge that Lee has constructed. And think of the strength of that. Lee's army will be like this. Half the Union Army will be over here. Half will be over here, all of them below the river. For this side to reinforce that side, these guys will have to cross the North Anna River, go across uh, uh, several miles of muddy roads, and then cross the river again. All Lee has to do to shift troops is just move them. He's got marvelous interior lines, and also happens to be a railway running across the bottom part of this V. Well, May 24th, things go beautifully. Grant believes Lee has retreated, sends dispatches up to Washington, Lee's running back to Richmond, we're going after him. Union Army crosses, Second Corps over here, 5th and 6th Corps over here, Ninth Corps kind of dribbling off both edges and sitting on the front, but basically split in half, and by noon, Lee has Grant exactly where he wanted him, because what Lee can do is take troops from one side and shift them to the other, leaving only a few to hold whatever side he decides to hold, and then he will be at numerical parity with the Federals. Not only will he split their army in half, he can then fight half of Lee's army uh, on equal numbers, something he's not yet been able to do in this campaign. That's, Grant, that's Lee's plan, but then fate steps in, and Lee gets sick. The, uh, he had been showing signs of sickness. There was a dysentery epidemic sweeping the army in Northern Virginia. Lee comes down with his bag. By the afternoon, he's confined to his tent. He knows what's going on. This is the best chance he's had in the campaign to get Grant, but he cannot do it. He has to lie in his tent. One of his aides left a stern account about how he lay in his tent saying he must not let them pass, he must not let them pass. But he couldn't stop them. He was unable to get out and personally oversee the complexity of this kind of a maneuver. And he had nobody else to do it. When Jackson was wounded, was badly wounded at Chancellorsville, Lee had of course used Jeb Stewart to step in and Stewart had done a good job. Stewart was dead. Longstreet was his main man. Longstreet was recuperating in Lynchburg, having been badly wounded. A.P. Hill was still there, but A.P. Hill had failed in the previous day. A.P. Hill was not what he used to be. And then there was always Dick Yule, he of the backslapping sword. Lee had totally lost faith in Yule, not only for those things, but also for another debacle at a place called Harris Farm uh, that had happened toward the end of the Spotsylvania campaign. So Lee basically had nobody that he could entrust to an operation of this complexity, and so he did nothing. Grant was puzzled by this. By the end of the day, Grant figured out what had happened. Orders go out on the Union side to dig in. The Federals dig entrenchments that pretty much mirror or parallel the Confederate lines. And by morning, that North Anna River is sutured with, with uh, pontoon bridges so that Lee's advantage is now lost. And the armies are sort of locked together against each other, one V being Lee's army and a bigger V on the outside of it. Grant's army stuck in place. And again, Grant is deadlocked. Grant decides after a day or so of this that he has to get out of there and moves his army over to Cold Harbor. I'm not going to go into the details of Cold Harbor or the crossing of the James because the story gets repeated. 
But the point that's interesting to me is that by the North Anna campaign, when Lee finally has his chance to win, or at least to, he may not have won the campaign, but at least to strike a very hard offensive blow, he's incapable of doing it because he has no subordinates left to can act. And so within three weeks, Grant has done what no other federal commander has been able to do throughout the war, and that is pull the teeth from Lee, destroy the offensive capacity of the Army in Northern Virginia, and that capacity, of course, will not be restored, and 10 months later, the war will be over. So that's the story of what happens to Lee's Corps Command. Basically, all four of them are destroyed. Some will come back at various times, not Jeff Stewart, of course, but Longstreet will, Longstreet will have the war, but it'll never again be the same. Well, thank you very much for having me talk. I'm told you have a harassment session for a few minutes, which, which I'd be glad to answer. You get, you get an award. I'll get an award first? Before the before? harassment. Okay. Wow, that's a pretty one. It's beautiful presents presented to Gordon C. Ray, oh, December nice. 8th, 2000. Beautiful. And again, thanks for a marvelous talk. Thank you. Oh, this is great. Appreciate that. And now we'll throw it open for questions. See, I gave one different than last night, so I wouldn't bore you. <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't have happened either oh, way. Okay. Yes, sir. If Grant's objective Lee's overall objective was to hold the Rapidan line. He, he makes that clear several times. His concern was that if he had to drop back on Richmond, that he would lose his ability to maneuver. Lee's strong point, he knew he had a smaller army, his strong point if he wanted to take the offensive was to be able to move. And as soon as he gets pushed back into uh, the uh, defenses of Richmond, then things will become a siege and that will be the end of it. He was very, very aware of that. And uh, his plan basically was to stop Grant at the Rapidan River. Uh, and that was the overall objective. Uh, the Grant's plan was to destroy Lee's army. That campaign has come to be called the Overland Campaign because the army sort of drifted from the North Anna River down to Richmond. Grant had not intended to do that in the first place. Richmond was not his goal. Uh, a lot of people who criticized Grant later claimed that he could have gotten all the way down to the North Anna or Cold Harbor without losing the soldier had he come up the way McClellan had come on the rivers. But getting to that geographical point was not what Grant was concerned about. Getting to Lee's army was what he was concerned about, and he would fight him wherever he could find him. Uh, and so that, that's pretty much where both of them were coming from. Yes, sir. The Upton's attack took place two days before that. Oh, on the uh, yeah, I can mention that on the uh, 10th of May, which was uh, one of those series of attacks made. On the 10th of May, Grant tried to bust through Lee's lines, and he wanted to put together a coordinated assault using all of his different army corps. He was going to use General Warren's Fifth Corps to bust through a place called Laurel Hill, and the Sixth Corps at that point under General Wright was going to bust into one side of that salient. There was a, a, a brigade commander, uh, Colonel Emory Upton, who was extremely aggressive from, from upstate New York. And uh, Upton came up with an idea. Uh, no one had been able to bust through these earthworks. Uh, Upton said, let's try something different. Uh, they gave him a crack force of 12 regiments drawn from the, from the Union Sixth Corps. He decided he'd take these 12 men and put them in a stand of woods that was only a few hundred yards from the Confederate earthworks. So he'd get as close as he could without being discovered. 
And then what he wanted to do was have the men packed tightly so that they would present a pretty strong column front, that they would move forward. They would not have their, uh, their, the uh, percussion caps on their muskets. He did not want them to stop and fire. The orders were, you're to move forward at the double quick. You're not to stop to shoot. You are not to pick up wounded men. You're to simply go forward. Do not stop until you reach the earthworks. He figured by doing that, he could get the men to the earthworks fast enough that they would only be subjected to one or two volleys at most. So the killing effect of the rifle weapons wouldn't have that big an impact. Once they hit the earthworks, the lead men were to spread this way down the earthworks and that way down the earthworks so that they could basically open a big gap. And then the men coming in behind were supposed to secure that area. So he would basically end up having punched through and opened up a hole in the Confederate works of several hundred yards. Another big force, a division under Gershom Mott, was then supposed to come pouring down and go in and exploit the breach. So it was a very good idea. You'd open a breach and another force would come in and exploit it. Like most things with the Army of the Potomac, that one went haywire in just about all of its particulars. The um, force that was supposed to be the supporting force and support um, Upton made its attack about an hour early and went to the wrong place and got blown to pieces by Confederate artillery and had to fizzle on back. But Upton wasn't told about that. He launches his assault, and it works beautifully. Uh, they, they busted through. They took fairly light casualties, split open a big piece of the Confederate line, but then there was nobody to come in and exploit the breach. And then after a short period of time, suddenly the men who'd broken through were stuck because the Confederates were rallying and attacking them. And then the problem became how to get out of there. And Upton managed to pull his men out, but they had to run back across that same field and took horrendous casualties in doing it. Uh, I think he lost around 1,000 men, if I remember the numbers right, 1,000 or 1,100, uh, and terrible casualties. He himself was then uh, made a brigadier general because of that. It was a great idea. Uh, it was, you know, the, often the Army of the Potomac is kind of like the gang that couldn't shoot straight. Um, and you see these marvelous ideas, and Upton's is one of them, uh, that just don't work because the pieces of that whole army are not coordinating. Uh, it's just it's not going together. Grant was very impressed with that assault, and according to a roving... Um, artillerist. Uh, he made a comment uh, that, uh, you know, today a brigade, tomorrow an army corps. And that it was that assault by Upton that gave him the idea for the big assault on May 12th at, at the mule ship. Yes, sir. First, I'd like to urge all my fellow members to read your books if they have not. Uh, Mr. Ray's one of my two favorite authors. And uh, you do not have to unless you're just stuck in the Western uh, will, I think, rank all three of his books in your top 20 if you have read them. My question is, I first contacted Mr. Ray regarding common men in Book of Pennsylvania, where he said it was, as just a closing tidbit, we were most fortunate for the Confederacy that Jeff Stewart was killed at the time he was, and that Hampton replaced him later. By the way, not if the right twist. Okay, yeah, I think very highly of Wade Hampton. Stewart was quite, a, was quite a superb general for what he was doing, for gathering reconnaissance and that sort of thing. Um, the, uh, when he was killed there at Yellow Tavern, Lee decided not to appoint a successor right away. There were really two choices. One of them was Fitz Lee. Uh, Fitz Lee was General Lee's nephew, uh, a very good soldier uh, and a, a former Indian fighter, but Lee had some qualms about how Fitz Lee would, would work out. 
and Wade Hampton. Wade Hampton was a uh, South Carolina planter, uh, an older man in his upper 40s, or younger man than some of us, but <laughs> old for those days, <laughs> and reputedly one of the richest men in the South. Uh, had a, a several very large plantations. Anyway, Hampton uh, commanded a division. Uh, there was some jealousy among the Virginians and Hampton, since he was not a Virginian, and didn't think very much of them. He also had no military background, but was extraordinarily sharp, uh, very good at leading troops. Uh, he was also the senior um, division commander in the cavalry corps. And so the next time Confederate cavalry really has to do much is when Grant begins his moves to Cold Harbor, uh, and there's a big cavalry battle at a place called Hawes Shop. I just wrote an article on that battle, and it's a chapter in the book I'm working on on Cold Harbor. And uh, Hawes Shop is one of the major cavalry battles of the war. Wayne Hampton runs it and manages to hold the Union cavalry at bay for some seven hours, get all the intelligence that he's been ordered to get, uh, and then get out of there. Uh, about equal losses between Confederates and Federals, but a very good job by Hampton, and he brings back to the Confederate Cavalry Corps a lot of its pride, or speed of corps, that had been lost with the drubbing that took place when Stewart was killed and, and the later events of that Richmond campaign. Uh, Hampton then, uh, I think, does a marvelous job at Chabrillian Station uh, a few weeks later, when he not only stops Sheridan, but makes Sheridan give up a raid and go back from whence he came. Uh, thereafter, Hampton runs the Confederate Cavalry Corps uh, with a very strong hand. He also runs it, I think, the way it, it had to be run in 1864. He changes the way cavalry is used. Uh, some of that had happened before, but he sort of institutionalizes it. The days of, of brilliant mounted charges start to disappear. They're used sometimes. But what Hampton does is use cavalry to uh, almost like dragoons. Uh, he uses the horses to get the men to where they need to go, but then they fight by getting, by dismounting, by throwing up uh, barricades and, of uh, fence rails and that sort of thing, and fighting dismounted behind uh, uh, entrenchments. And that's the way he starts to fight cavalry. And that's the way that, of course, Sheridan also fought cavalry. And that's not the way that Stuart liked to fight cavalry because it just wasn't uh, romantic enough. Uh, so that's why I think that Hampton made the big change. It was the sort of temperament that was more suited the kind of fighting of 1864. Also, the Federal Cavalry had changed and now had repeating uh, uh, the carbines, the seven-shot carbines that required a very different kind of fighting. Mounted charges don't do too good against seven-shot carbines. And Hampton knew that. So that's why I think he was the right man at the right time. Yes, sir. How do you evaluate Grant? Yeah. I'm, I'm real big on Grant. I, I was born in Virginia and grew up in Tennessee. Grant is not popular in either place. <laughs> <laughs> My daddy hated Grant. Uh, I can confess that. But uh, and I came to writing my wilderness book not liking Grant just because of what I was, you know, Southern boy, and that's what I heard. But um, having been uh, educated in, in northern institutions, I knew I was supposed to be objective. And so I decided what I would do is just look at the facts as they unfolded in these campaigns with these personalities and forget all of the prejudgments and try to draw my own conclusions. And I've come to, to view Grant as a superb general. I think he was every bit the caliber of Lee as a general. Very different personalities, but every bit as aggressive and every bit as daring and every bit as willing to use unorthodox means to achieve an end. Um, I, there's a story I tell that, that sort of sums it up for me uh, as to how my opinion of Grant has changed. And I think the way Civil War scholarship is starting to think about Grant now also. Um, when I was a kid, we used to think about Grant as being this general that was charged straight ahead and sacrificed his man at earthworks and never maneuvered. Uh, and we also, I was interested in dinosaurs. 
and the theory of dinosaurs was that they were sort of like General Grant. They were leaf-eating animals that would kind of blunder and blunder ahead uh, and could barely move. And that's they sort of fit. Steven Spielberg has changed all of that with Jurassic Park. We now know that dinosaurs are quick uh, animals, sort of like birds. And I come to think of Grant more as like the velociraptor in Jurassic Park. Uh, as far as his ability to move. If you look at what he does in this Oberlin camp, well, of course, his campaign of Vicksburg is a classic of maneuver and, and leaving your supplies and, and everything you can think of. The same thing with the Oberlin campaign. He, the campaign begins with maneuver. He fights Lee in the wilderness for two days, realizes that casualties will be too high, maneuvers to try to pull him out of the wilderness. A good idea. Most of these ideas, by the way, don't work, but it's not Grant's fault. Uh, he shares in the blame, but I don't put it mainly on him. It has to do with a lot of institutional problems with the Army. Uh, he fights the Spotsylvania Courthouse, tries a lot of brilliant maneuvers there. None of them work. Uh, he then you know, tries sending Hancock out of his bait. That doesn't work. He, he tries the North Anna River gambits. He's continually moving. Every time things stalemate, he moves on to try again. Um, a, a, a man who loves maneuver and a man who keeps focus on his big strategic objective. And it's long-term strategic objective is to beat Lee. It's not to win a battle at this place or that place. And he looks at, at, at defeats that other generals look at as absolute defeats, as simple tactical reverses. And, you know, okay, we'll try the next thing. If you look at, say, the Battle of the Wilderness, uh, Grant took more losses in the wilderness than Hooker had taken at Chancellorsville, which is right by there, the year before. Of course, Hooker retreated. Grant moved south. So he, I think, he brought a vision and direction to the, that theater that it just did not have. I suspect if there had not been a grant uh, that Meade would have given up after the Battle of the Wilderness or wherever the battle had been and would have gone back if he followed the pattern that had always been followed. And uh, we may be two countries right now. I don't know. So I, think, I think Grant is a man who made a huge difference in, in, in those campaigns. Um, there was a lot of dysfunctionality between him and Meade and the others. I suspect if there had not been a grant, Meade was, we'd be reading the newspaper today and would say, you know, that Meade's great-grandson is still maneuvering for position in the wilderness. <laughs> <laughs> Grant brought that sense of, of you know, of, of where this has to go to it. He's criticized often because of the high level of casualties. He lost about 55,000 men in that 40-day campaign. Lee lost about 35,000 uh, in that same campaign. If you, percentage-wise, Grant was losing a lower level than Lee was, even though Lee was the one who was mainly fighting on the defense. So that says, I think, a whole lot about uh, the relative killing that's going on there. Um, the, if you look at the casualties that Grant was incurring, it was over a, a long period. And what he was doing is in, is in keeping with that philosophy I mentioned before. He, did not want, he didn't want to fight a battle and then stop, because he realized that if you did that, the Confederates would just strengthen again, then you have to fight another one. And as he viewed it, there had been a series of battles that were bloodier than his. No, no one of his days looks anything like Antietam or most of the days of Gettysburg. Um, most of the battles had been bloodier than his and had produced nothing, or at least nothing that was of lasting significance. So he was ready to basically fight the Seven Days Campaign and then immediately, without stopping, fight uh, the Fredericksburg Campaign and then the Antietam Campaign and then Gettysburg. So if you look at, and I did it for an article a while back, it was interesting to me, look at the number of casualties there were in the same number of fighting days that Grant had under earlier generals, and Grant comes out looking pretty good. Uh, and the other thing is that his days of fighting, of course, produced a result. 
the others hadn't yet. Because when they were starting out there in 64, they were about back to where they'd been uh, the year before. Leaving 65,000 there in the wilderness was more than he had in Antietam, more than he had at Chancellorsville. It was almost as many as he brought up to uh, Gettysburg. Uh, so I, don't know, I think the world of man. Okay, we have one, one more question. Uh, this man was first, I think, yeah. Yes. Okay. I just wanted you to comment, perhaps, on why Lee did not, of course, today's modern army uses Grant's right. five-paragraph field order as their model, yep. not Lee's order. Why Lee didn't realize that while he was a great strategist, he was not a good tactician. Why he didn't get a different chief of staff who could translate his imprecise orders into things his subordinates could understand some clear directives, whereas Grant was all supporters were never in doubt. They were often in doubt in their execution, and that wasn't his fault. They were never in doubt of what they were supposed to do, where they were supposed to go, and how they were supposed to do it. They messed up often. Why didn't Lee find within himself to call some general who could understand, who could translate these strategic thoughts of Lee into actual tactics, clear, precise, to tell his subordinates what they need to do instead of berating them for not being Stuart and for not being generals who are now I think it's the way he was. I mean, if, if I've taken several times the um, training and doctrine command of the U.S. Army. They do staff rides, and I've done several staff rides for them in the wilderness in Spotsylvania and, and North Anna and those places, and, and those are the kinds of questions that are always asked, and, and what impresses me is that Lee in particular did not really have a staff. If you look at who Lee's staff officers were, uh, he's got a, what, a, a bank clerk. Uh, you know who all the Taylor was a bank clerk, yes. yeah. I mean, he's got a lawyer. Yeah. He's got lawyers. You're a lawyer, too. <laughs> the, uh, he's got those kinds of people. But he's not military men. Uh, and there's no, that was before the idea of dividing staff functions up that ever had evolved. No one was in charge of logistics. Lee was doing it all, uh, and I think that he felt that his personal style would work better that way. Uh, you're right, it, it was a mess. Uh, sometimes it worked very well if he had good subordinates, but when he didn't have good subordinates, things would fall apart. Grant's staff work wasn't all that hot either, though, uh, and a big problem that Grant had was coordinating with me, and one of the fascinating stories of that campaign is how the relationships between Grant and me deteriorated horribly. Grant starts off the campaign saying, I will not interfere with the logistical or, or tactical details of the Army of the Potomac. He sits there puffing his cigar, and by the end of the first day, he starts to tell me what to do. He keeps his promise about 12 hours, maybe. He then, by the end of the wilderness, if you look at the order that he drafts for the movement of the armies, Grant says you will move your 5th Army Corps down the Brock Road, your 6th Army Corps will go down this way. He is starting to micromanage the Army of the Potomac. By the time they get to Spotsylvania Courthouse, Grant is calling all the shots. Those big assaults at the mule shoe and all of those things are, are Grant. But he's got, and this is a problem that his aides pointed out to him, Meade was not an aggressive man. And he was being asked to do things that really ran counter to his grain. And so the translation of those orders down through Meade and how they then get interpreted by the Corps commanders, each of whom have their own rivalries and things, accounts a lot for why those assaults fall apart. And so Grant's having a hard time too. I think that Grant had his own army. If his only mission had been to destroy Lee, and here's your army and your men in it, uh, he could have done it pretty handily. Um, but that's another story, too. And Richard McMurray says it's because the men in the West are better than the men in the East. 
Thank you. Thank you. We'll have to call the halt now.